Good evening, brothers and sisters. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be able to be here with you and to open up God's word with you. I'm particularly excited, though, today or this, this evening for the, the opportunity to look at this text with you. Um, I was really thankful when Brad reached out to me and asked me to do it. I looked at the text, and at first I was a little intimidated, but the Lord was so faithful to just minister to me and, and encourage me with this text as I prepared. So I hope and I pray that um, he will do the same for you. So with that said, if you'll open your Bibles with me to the book of Zechariah, we're going to be in chapter 13, or you can follow along with us in the, in the handout. Um, as you turn there, I just want to give you some brief context for this book just to help set things up for us. Um, Zechariah is a fascinating book. It's full of visions and poetic messages and oracles, and all of these things were written uh, to the post-exilic community. Zechariah was ministering to these people who had returned from exile, been commissioned by God with the task of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. But the, the work was slow going. Things weren't going the way that they had expected. It's clear from books like Haggai and Ezra that the community struggled with discouragement and disappointment and, and even fear as they were facing opposition both within and without. And so Zechariah is sort of written in this context to help encourage these people to get about the work. And, and the way in which God does that in particular is to give these glorious visions of hope for what the future is going to be like. Because the people had been brought to a position where they were prone to doubt whether or not God still intended to do good to them. And the overall message of Zechariah from God to the people is, don't be afraid I, I intend to do good to you. And, and so in that vein, as part of this encouragement, the book ends with this, this spectacular vision of hope for the future. And this central figure of this vision is this messianic shepherd, this messianic king, whose rejection and whose suffering and death is going to initiate God's plan to purify the hearts of his people. In keeping with that, chapter 13 opens with this wonderful promise that in the latter days, God is going to break forth this fountain of purification. And he's going to do this by turning his own hand against the shepherd and then against the shepherd's sheep. It's a shocking picture, one that seems hard for us to even contemplate. But read along with me there in verse 7. Awake, O sword against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Again, this leaves us with some obvious questions. Why would God strike his own Messiah, his companion? And what could it possibly mean for God to turn his hand against these sheep? And furthermore, what does this mean for us as those who recognize Christ as our Messiah? Well, friends, to answer those questions, we're going to consider our text in two movements that are going to correspond to this picture of the stricken shepherd and the scattering sheep. And as we do that, I want us to consider that the main idea for this text is, that I think, this. God purifies his people through suffering. So to be clear, that's going to be our main idea. God purifies his people through suffering. And I want us to see that in these two 
pictures of the shepherd and the sheep. And that's gonna, so those are gonna serve as our two main points. And they'll, and they'll be stated in this way. Point number one, Christ's suffering purifies us from the penalty of sin and our suffer, suffering purifies us from the power of sin. So starting with point one, again, that central question for us here is why would God turn his own hand against his own Messiah? Why would he awaken, as he says, and draw his own sword against one he says is his own companion, one who stands by his side? Well, of course, we saw something of the answer to that in our text this morning. Brad helped us see how Jesus applies this text to himself. In predicting his arrest and his death, Jesus makes it clear that he sees himself as the stricken shepherd of Zechariah 13.7. But consider the implications of that. If he is this messianic figure of Zechariah, the stricken shepherd whose death opens a fountain of purification, then his death was not just a death brought about by the hands of sinful men, but by God himself. Remember, it is God who strikes the shepherd here. Which means that in applying this text himself, Jesus is showing us, just as Brad helped us see this morning, that the striking of the shepherd at the hands of God brings purification by being both a punitive and substitutionary death. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, by punitive, I mean the very same thing that Brad said to us this morning. Namely, that Jesus' death was a punishment. But not a punishment primarily of Roman or Jewish design, but of God the Father's design. Because you see, Jesus bore the full cup of the wrath of God. He is the one who stands at the right hand of God, and yet he himself was stricken by God for sin. Remember, as Brad pointed out, that that punishment, it was not his own. He was punished as a substitute in our place. He had no guilt of his own. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live and do not live. And yet he died the death that you and I deserve, and he bore the wrath that you and I deserve. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. Do you see how our text points forward to this glorious truth that Christ suffered the wrath of God in our place in order to purify us from the penalty of sin that we deserve? And perhaps you're here with us this evening and you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ or you've just never really understood what it means for Jesus to die for sinners. Well, recognize what this text is saying. You stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. But God's made a way for you to be forgiven and reconciled to him. You don't have to face the infinite wrath of God on your own. Jesus has taken that cup. Friend, if you will simply repent of your sins and put your trust in him, then this stricken shepherd, his wounds can heal yours. 
Friends, do not think that you can escape the judgment of God if you neglect the salvation that's been provided for you in Christ. I implore you, if you haven't, trust in Christ this very evening. But if you're a Christian and you're here with us, then I want to just encourage you with this simple reminder. Remember, when you suffer, your suffering is not a punishment from God. If you're in Christ, let me assure you, God is not angry with you. He has purposed to do you good. And what more evidence do we need of that than the fact that he has laid the punishment that we deserve on his own son? Remember that wonderful picture that Brad pointed us to this morning. When you're suffering, you need only look to the eyes of Christ and remember those eyes look back at you, not with anger or hatred, but with love. We ought to take heart in this wonderful love and mercy that we've been shown in our stricken shepherd. He was struck so that we might be purified from the penalty of our sin. But what about this picture of the scattering sheep? If the shepherd was punished in our place, what in the world does Zechariah mean when he says that God turns his hand against the, shattering, the, the scattering sheep? Again, I think Brad helped us to see something of this in, in the answer of this answer in his text this morning. As we saw Jesus apply this text, not just to himself, but to his disciples. And by extension, I think to us as well. Of course, we saw how the disciples scattered when the shepherd was struck. We saw that image of the naked man streaking away in the night. And of course, there was Peter's own denial of Christ. And we considered why they fled in the first place. As Brad alluded to, in those pivotal moments, they were more willing to disown their own Lord than deny themselves. But that's not the end of the story. No, eventually they would find themselves standing and suffering for Christ. And in Peter's case, perhaps standing in that very same room that Christ once stood in, as he stood before a council to answer. Only this time, rather than denying Jesus, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, would say to them, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in that name. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. It's a very different answer than the one we saw this morning, isn't it? Do you see how in time, Peter and the rest of the disciples not only learned to suffer for Christ, but they considered it an honor? And of course, through their epistles, we can see that they expected us to experience the same thing. And they call us to regard our own suffering as loving discipline from Christ that is meant to purify our hearts from sin. Peter himself puts it this way in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
Or consider what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. Friends, like the disciples, we too are fearful sheep who are prone to flee, are we not? But God doesn't leave us to flee. He pursues us and he sets his hand of discipline on us. And that's what Zechariah wants us to see when God turns his hand on these sheep friends. He's not turning his hand to punish them, but to purify them. But if that's true, it's crucial that we learn to cooperate with God in our suffering. That we don't fight him in such discipline. That we, allow, that we don't allow ourselves to become hard-hearted or bitter when we suffer. As the author of Hebrews says in that same passage, passage, straighten your tired hands and weakened knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. If such suffering is to be regarded as discipline, friends, we ought to also be praying for, for those who are suffering in our body. We ought to be doing this as often as we can, lest they become bitter or weary of doing good. Friends, let me assure you of this. Suffering in this body, it's not a possibility. It's a guarantee. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, you yourselves know we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Friends, understand all Christians, all churches at all times are destined to walk this path of suffering to heaven. We must be ready and willing to encourage one another in our suffering. But to do that, we have to enter into the suffering of others, don't we? We have to bear their burdens. We have to hear their cries. We have to feel their pain, weep with those who weep, and remind them of the Lord's love and kindness towards them. Remind them that they are destined for this, that they're being counted worthy to suffer. Most of all, we need to remind each other that God is purifying us through such suffering. I hope you see that when God turns his hand against these scattering sheep, he's not punishing them, but purifying them. That's why Zechariah goes on to tell us that part of this process of turning the hand God's turning his hand against the sheep will result in a third of them being put into a fire and being refined as one refined silver so that they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So by turning his hand against the sheep, God is in fact purifying them so that they would call upon his name so that he would be their God and they would be his people. I hope you see that the shepherd has been struck for you and for me. And if we are in him, we have been purified from the penalty of sin. And though you may feel like scattering sheep at times, take heart in this fact, God is using your suffering to purify you from the power of sin. 
Pray with me, friends. Father, I pray you would just use this passage to humble us under your mighty hand. I pray in all our suffering, we would cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. I pray we would be sober-minded and watchful, knowing that our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. But I pray we would resist him and stand firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our fellow believers throughout the world. Most of all, Father, I pray that after we have suffered for just a little while, that you, the God of all grace, who has called us to your eternal glory, will both restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. To you, O God, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.